0: Hello, you're listening to Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors get together at the virtual water cooler to talk about the latest news in health policy. I'm Rob Lott. Now, as you may recall from last week, we're taking a break from the headlines for a few months and digging a little deeper. For January, we've decided to make our focus housing and health. This short series is really a chance to elevate some of the content from our archives, namely half a dozen health policy briefs on the topic, and also uh, we wanted to set the stage for our upcoming theme issue scheduled to go live in early February and featuring more than a dozen cutting-edge empirical research papers on the topic as well, really moving the field forward. And so we're doing our part here by talking to those experts ahead of time who have helped us developed those briefs over the years. Our guest today is Dr. Craig Pollack, the Katie Ayers Endowed Professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management in the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the School of Nursing there. He's a practicing internal medicine physician whose research focuses on social determinants of health with an emphasis on housing policies. His work has been funded by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, HUD, and NIH, and I had such a good time talking to him about the low-income housing tax credit. Here's my conversation with Dr. Pollock. Craig, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Our topic today is the low-income housing tax credit, often referred to as LIHTC, and health, which was also the topic of a 2018 health policy brief. And Craig, uh, maybe to start with some context, I can share with you my uh, very basic understanding of some of the history that led to the creation of these tax credits. And if you'll forgive me, you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so the the vast overgeneralization is that for a good chunk of the twentieth century, from about to the from about the thirties to the eighties, give or take, governments, federal, state, local, were direct players in the housing business. They built public housing projects for people with low or no incomes to live in at no cost or at highly subsidized rates. But over time that approach really fell apart when Local housing authorities didn't have the resources to maintain the housing or protect the residents. And contrary to their goals, these efforts, uh, therefore, had the effect of really further entrenching poverty and segregating underserved populations. Then it was sort of in response to these trends that the government attempted a shift in strategy. It took two key steps, at least two. Uh, One was the creation of uh, housing choice vouchers, which essentially gave qualifying individuals a voucher worth a certain amount of monthly rent to pay for housing anywhere they wanted, um, or at least anywhere someone would accept their voucher. Um, And this was a demand side approach, if you will. Then the other key step around this time in the mid-80s came from the supply side seeking to increase the amount of available affordable housing. And what we got and still have to this day is the low income housing tax credit. So Craig, uh, thanks for bearing with the long preamble. Uh, two questions, one, is is that a fair description if grossly oversimplified of how we got here? And two, um, how are these tax credits intended to work?
1: Great, well thanks so much for having me on this program today. Um, I do think it's a fair description, but uh, you know, as a researcher and uh, nerd in this area, I do want to offer a few little caveats. So uh, the first is around the housing choice voucher program, which is designed to open up a broad range of neighborhoods for participants. But there's a lot of evidence to show that the use of vouchers isn't evenly distributed across cities. And even when you account for the underlying location of rental units, there's still a concentration of rental households in poor neighborhoods. And so, you know, can refer you to the book by Eva Rosen, The Voucher Promise, talking about how the kind of access to opportunity neighborhoods has not always been met by the housing voucher program. And there's been a lot of work in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development or HUD to try to think about ways to increase neighborhood access. There's Community Choice uh, Demonstration Program, which is giving services to help families move to opportunity neighborhoods, as well as issues around payment reform and, and the like. Um, a second caveat is that there's still a lot of programs designed to help with place-based initiatives like public housing. Uh, HUD still owns a lot of and runs a lot of public housing through public housing authorities. And there's programs like uh, the Old Hope 6 program, Choice Neighborhoods and the like designed to, to uh, kind of help with the neighborhoods. You're absolutely right that LIHTC is the main supply-side program designed to help finance affordable housing for low-income renters. The program started in 1986 under the Tax Reform Act and has helped finance the construction rehabilitation of about 3 million housing units in the U.S. It's a really large program to be so under the radar for for many of us. The foregone tax revenue is substantial at about $13.5 billion a year. And here's how it works. So states get an allocation of tax credits each year, which developers then apply for. There are certain federal standards and then states have their own rules that are part of the scoring criteria called qualified allocation plans or QAPs so developers apply for these tax credits from state housing finance agencies and are awarded tax credits so they like developers when you're going in and you're developing a property you need upfront uh, uh, money in order to, to construct the, the property or rehabilitate the property. And so the tax credits happen over time. And what happens is that developers sell these tax credits often to financial institutions in exchange for money that they use upfront to help defray the co- the cost of constructing or rehabilitating housing. Um, there are rules that the the developers need to abide by. Often the units need to remain affordable for 15 years. And then there's certain like thresholds around income and percentages of the units that 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 need to be met. So for example, you can need to set aside 40% of the rental units for households earning no more than 60% of area median income as one example. That can vary depending on area median income and often developers talk about area median income rather than kind of level of poverty. So to give you a sense, the area median income in Baltimore city is about $54,000. And so, if you're thinking about 60 percent of that, this is not necessarily reaching kind of the, the the lowest income renters. And often, we kind of started the conversation talking about like vouchers and LIHTC being separate, but often these two can be used in kind con- in conjunction with one another. So, kind of a rental household that has a voucher uh, can sometimes rent in a, a LIHTC building.
0: So, how did the introduction of these tax credits, and over time sort of changed the housing market and the affordable housing market in particular. I think it's fair to say that we're still in a housing crisis in the
1: United States. There's not enough affordable housing to meet needs, period. And at the same time, these tax credits have helped construct a large number of affordable housing units in the United States. I said earlier, it's about 3 million housing units that have been constructed. Um, there's been a lot of research by a lot of housing economists and the like, looking at like where are high tech buildings being built and what happens to some of the surrounding properties. So I talked about developers needing to apply to state housing authorities to get vouchers. And as part of the program, there's traditionally been an incentive for developers who locate housing in certain census tracts. The idea here is to help development in these under-resourced neighborhoods, and it's supposed to be part of this concerted community revitalization plan. There have also been some state plans that recognize that development costs in higher opportunity neighborhoods um, are higher and that children outcomes are better. And so there's been some moved to award points or have some separate allocations for developments in these neighborhoods. But overall, we've seen tech properties tended to be located in areas with fewer resources than areas where rental properties are located overall. There tend to be areas with poor, uh, poor labor market engagement and worse school quality. Um, although maybe located in areas with some better access to travel. The literature on property values, my understanding shows that if anything, there's maybe a a neutral or positive effect. So if you build light tech in the neighborhood, the surrounding properties don't end up losing value, but tend to uh, be neutral or maybe a little bit uh, higher in value compared to other similar properties.
0: Uh, As you know, we've also published a brief a few years ago uh, providing sort of an overview looking at the pathways um, connecting housing to health. And there are obviously uh, multiple mechanisms by which housing can affect people's health. There's the quality and safety of the housing as a factor. Affordability is another. uh, Stability. And there's also um, obviously where the housing is located, the so-called neighborhood effects. Um, And I could see the theory of sort of how each of these factors might be shaped by uh, the application of the low-income housing tax credit over the last 20, 30 years. But is there any evidence for these causal pathways? And how strong is it?
1: So you're absolutely right. There's a lot of potential pathways here. And each of the pathways that you listed around housing affordability and construction quality and neighborhood context... Um, and the like, all of those are probably at play here. Think really concretely about building standards for LIHTC, which are stipulated under the different plans. And absolutely, we think that that could have an effect on health. But the truth is the evidence here is really thin. There's very little causal evidence on the connection between tech and health. There've been some area level studies looking at kind of the amount of LIHTC in a county or other community. There was a nice study by Elena Derby who uh, used tax records that showed that living in Lytec was possibly associated with education and earnings among children um, as they grow up to become adults. So, our group, uh, led by Sarah Gersheimer, who was a PhD student at the time, uh, linked the location of Lytec buildings with the National Health Interview Survey data to try to get a picture of the health of adults and kids living in Lytec. This is not at all. Causal, but instead just trying to characterize the health characteristics of the population, and we found the results showed a somewhat mixed picture. For example, we found that children living in Lytech had some evidence of improved healthcare access, including higher rates of well-child visits and dental visits compared to similar children not in Lytech. But they were also more likely to have school absenteeism and current asthma. Again, it's not clear whether this is related to like selection into Lytech, which absolutely a possible mechanism here, or some factor of the Litech housing itself. And for adults, we found that those living in LIHTC had some higher rates of psychological distress and an ED visit, but more likely to have a flu vaccine. For older adults, they were more likely to have a fall. So again, not causal results. And I think this is an area where we really need to grow our research understanding.
0: Great. So following up on that, um, as a researcher, you know what would you need um, to be able to dig deeper, to sort of deepen that evidence base? So one of the things that we often hear is that when a LIHTC
1: building opens, that there are a lot of people that want to live there, right? A lot of people are, are wanting affordable housing and that there can be really long wait lists. And so one of the things we've been trying to do for a while now is find developers who have long wait lists of data and where we can link that data to, um, to health records to try to understand kind of for the people in light tech that get in, what are the differences in health compared to people on the wait list? I think another point that I want to raise is that um, one of my colleagues says, kind of, you've seen one light tech building, you've seen one light tech building. That There's a lot of heterogeneity in the exposure. And so kind of in the national studies we've done, we've kind of treated light tech as as a single exposure. But we know that the size of the development varies, the amenities included vary, the neighborhood location varies. And so I think it's really important to try to um, tease that out a little bit more.
0: Okay, so uh, this program has been around for about um, 35, almost 40 years. Um, we've learned a lot, but as you've said, there's still a lot more to learn. Um, how do you think people's understanding of this program has changed over the last three decades? Um, well, I think that there's
1: been kind of a, two key trends that I just wanna uh, bring up. The first is the kind of continued trend and focus on housing affordability generally. And this is clearly not a new problem in the United States. I was looking back at some of the historical data and interest rates when this passed in 1986 for mortgages were between nine and 10%, right? People were worried about the housing affordability crisis at the time, worried about it again in the 2008 uh, foreclosure crisis. And of course, most recently during the COVID pandemic that there's just a lot of attention uh, to the problem of lack of affordable housing in the United States that um, we need to focus on. The second trend is understanding lack of affordable housing as a health problem. So the connection between housing health seems somewhat obvious, right? But the idea that back in 1986, from this past that health affairs would be doing a podcast on the health effects of LIHTC, I think is not on people's radar. And I think there's just a growing recognition that housing policy and social policy more generally is really health policy. And I think we see that at kind of the macro level when thinking about kind of broad social factors and also in the clinical encounter when we think about screening patients for health-related social needs and connecting them to services, that, that really that these factors, these, these different domains are so intricately connected to one another.
0: Craig, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. It was a really interesting conversation. I really enjoyed it, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, keeping the conversation going. Thanks so much for having me. Well, there you have it, folks, my conversation with Dr. Craig Pollack. Tune in next week when we'll talk with Dr. Ingrid Ellen from NYU. She's going to help us learn all about housing, mobility, and health. For now, please don't forget to subscribe to Health Affairs This Week. Recommend it to a friend and leave a review. Oh, one more thing. Sign up for our newsletters. They're free. They're full of great health policy content you won't find anywhere else. And it's the best way to make sure you're among the first to know about upcoming theme issues, like February's special one on housing and health. All right. We'll talk to you next week, friends. Take care.